thanks for having me. Uh, again, my name is Brandon Shoup, and uh, my wife Jennifer is here, and our oldest son Grant, and Jackson didn't last very long before he decided, nah, children's ministry is for me after all. So um, I, was, I was looking at my notes just before we started, and Grant looked over and he goes, are you, are you the guy that's going to get up and talk today? And I said, yeah, and he said, all of that? We're going to be here all day. So just brace yourselves. Just, just kidding. We, we won't be here all day. Um, well, again, we want to talk today about the happiness of God. And, and I think that's great. It's, it's clearly biblical from what I've studied. But even sounding, saying that, the happiness of God, sounds like just a little off, right? Like, well, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't really think a lot sometimes about God's emotional state. You know, like I, it's sort of like when you're a kid, you don't really think about how to feel. You just, they're in charge. And they do what they do, and I guess they own the house, so maybe they're happy. I don't know. But you just don't think about it that much. And so, and sometimes it's, it's difficult to believe that God is a happy God when you think about all of the different things that are going on in the world with, with war and famine and terrorism and addiction and abuse and all that laundry list of potentially negative things. But... Jesus says for us in Hebrews 12, 2, that we're to, we're to turn our eyes on him. We're to fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And I, that's kind of a, a weird phrase that we're going to unpack a little bit in a little bit. But, uh, but I, I want us to go through, through the scripture here this morning. It says, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. See, you guys are so much better than that last church. You guys actually, like, you guys know this stuff. <laughs> but uh, so that's what I want us to do. I want us to dig into the scripture and let's allow the Holy Spirit to just show us who He is. Does that work for you guys? All right. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are unchanging. And while while there are so many different facets to your to your character and to your being that we can never fully understand, you're you're the same. You're always the same. You're consistent. So, Lord, would you just teach us who you are this morning? Would you teach us about who you are in this component of your character? And we bless you and we thank you. We ask that you would breathe upon your word and allow us to forget the rest. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 98, 4 through 8 says this. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp, with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and blasts of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it. Let the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. I love this. That every time I preach this message and play that video, I hear people in the audience singing along with the songs that they know, and I can, I can sense the smiles sort of forming throughout the room because happiness is, is compelling, right? And, and it, it says here in the Scripture that the rivers clap their hands. In other places it says, let the trees of the forest clap their hands. And only compelled things, only compelled beings clap. Either we're compelled by... Uh, by, by something that we truly appreciate and we genuinely are, are happy about something and love it, or, we, or we, we're compelled by sort of social you know, pressure. And, oh, we'll give them a little golf clap for that one. But only compelled people clap. And so the earth itself, the rivers, the trees of the forest clap their hands and they sing for joy. They burst into jubilant song is what the scripture says. So how can that be 
unless a happy God created them to be that way. We are made for something more. And Randy Alcorn in his book, Happiness, says it this way. Because we are made for greatness, the world's superficiality is unsatisfying. We sense that unhappiness is abnormal, and we ache for someone, somehow, to bring us lasting happiness. Did you know that? That you and I, little old us, that we're made for greatness? That we're made to be partakers of and to share in the mystery of Almighty God? Think about that. It's true. We are. And part of his mystery is that he's happy. And I don't mean that he's that he has happy feelings sometimes, although I'm sure that's true. I mean that he is happy. Or maybe a better way of saying that is that he is happiness. And to be united with him is to partake in that happiness. You know, at the shoe house every night, we uh, we have what we like to we call a, we reflect. Blah, 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 blah. I'm going to learn to speak English one of these days. Um, we affectionately refer to this as, as crash time or wrestling time. And, and I think because wrestling was hard to say for Grant when he was like a year and a half old, so he just said, Dad, let's crash. But every night for the last you know 10 to 20 minutes before we go to bed, Grant, Jackson, and I hit the guest bedroom, and we just beat the tar out of each other. And, and it's fantastic. Um, it's less and less fantastic for me the older they get as they get a little stronger. But they, we just love it. And, and one of my things is that, you know, Jenna's talked to me about the idea that she, she loves to be in the other room just hearing the giggling uh, and the occasional scream. But, um, but we do, we just, we just wrestle. You guys have heard of, like, the five love languages, right? I'm sure that my, boys lang- my love language for my boys is wrestling. And they're, and they're happy when we do it. Like, we're, even when we're beating each other up, they're just they're grinning and, and giggling and laughing and having a great time. And I love it, too, because I love seeing them happy. Having them be happy makes me happy. And the Bible says that if we who are evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Father give those to ask? So doesn't it stand to reason that just like my boys and I enjoy one another, that God is happy when we spend time with him? In other words, happiness is, is sort of intrinsically, it's, an, it's innately a human desire. We're all hardwired for it. But how is that possible unless God intended it to be that way? After all, we are made in the Imago Dei, which is a you know, fancy Latin theological term meaning the image of God. And, or it's, it's, it's reflecting, as Mark was saying, reflecting the nature and the character and the components of God's character. So if our nature reflects a happiness or a need for it, then that must be part of God's nature as well. So I've been driving for Uber the last several months, like on, on nights and weekends, to pick up a little extra cash. And uh, it's been interesting. <laughs> uh, usually I spend Friday and Saturday nights downtown Denver driving people around that, let's just say, you'd be happy they're not driving themselves. Um, there's an old, like, 80s lover boy song called Everybody's Working. You remember that? Everybody's working for the... Okay, sorry, little 80s kid in me is coming out. Um, but that's, that's it. Like, it's that classic idea that we have to do something really outrageous and really fantastic on the weekends to sort of escape the nine-to-five drudgery of our lives. It's been said that, uh, that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. And when I drive around inebriated 20-and-somethings, 20-and-30-somethings around until the wee hours of the morning, it's convinced me of this truth that we all really, 
really, really want to be happy. But it's also convinced me of another truth. And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. It says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't even conceive what it means to have a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. In other words, we so desperately want to be happy, we're willing to accept a counterfeit and a highly temporal one with negative side effects just to catch a glimpse of what it feels like to be happy and joyful. And we sort of know that it's fleeting, right? We know that it's almost as if we expect, anytime there's something happening, we expect sort of a negative backlash because we know that these things are just temporary. And I contend that you can find sin, in almost every sin, the exact same way. This is this sort of a key truth for us this morning. Sin is an inappropriate response to a legitimate God-given need or desire. Sin is an illegitimate response to a legitimate, God-given need or desire. God is truth, right? And what do we call Satan? We call him the father of the father of lies. In other words, God is the only truly creative being in the entire universe. He's the only one who can create ex nihilo or, or make something out of nothing. Only the, the only thing that the devil can do is, is to counterfeit and to, to distort creation. So let's look at the Garden of Eden. Satan simply distorted and manipulated Adam and Eve's desires. What is lust, if not a distortion of love and sexuality, both of which were created to be good? What is wrath, but a distortion of righteous anger? What is envy, but a distorted view of God's blessing on others? What is addiction, but a distorted and manipulated view that we can be satisfied? And addiction, like its ugly cousin greed, says that we always need more. What is adultery or fornication but a distorted and manipulated view on marriage and companionship? Are you sensing a pattern yet? This is why it's a lie that we've been told that the pursuit of happiness is worldly while the pursuit of holiness is godly. The truth is that happiness and holiness are completely compatible. The lie that the devil or the world have all the fun and that Christianity only takes the fun out of your lives is a dangerous idea. And it's dangerous because it distorts the truth about God's character. And any time we, we mess with the character of God, we're standing on shaky ground. Do we choose to abstain from certain temporal pleasures or, or, or behaviors with our eyes set on heaven or, or with better things in mind? Of Of course. But Jesus promised us both happiness as well as difficulty. Let's let's look at the Beatitudes for in a second here. Um, I, I want to teach you something about the Greek. Is the word uh, in the Greek that's translated "blessed" is the word "makarios," and the actual definition of that word is it is a person characterized by transcendent happiness or religious joy, and without the religious connotation, fortunate or lucky. The word that we translate as joy or blessed oftentimes, well, that's the word throughout the Beatitudes that Jesus uses to describe people who follow him. So let's let's read that together in just a second here. But uh, William Tyndale, a famous theologian, translated James 1.12. You, you've heard this said, blessed is he who endures trial under persecution. He translates that happy. 
And I think that's maybe a better description. The word blessed is just King James English, happy. It meant transcendent happiness and religious joy. We've just, we've just taken a word that's a little bit older and continued to move it along just because it's, because it's the scriptural word. It's the, it's the biblical word. It's the holy word. And sometimes when we do that, we put words that just don't have lost their meaning in our culture. So I want us to sort of reinvigorate this word here. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now I want us to, to put this on the, on the screen together, and I want us to read this together, this next section, translated the way that Tyndale would. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let's, let's read this together. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to take a, one of those a little bit deeper. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. When we make peace between ourselves and others, we are being like Jesus. We're imitating our Savior and, and His nature. After all, the Prince of Peace. And as a result, we're called the children of God. So being like God, so we're blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of, of God. When we act like Jesus, when we provide peace, when we create peace between one another, we're like Jesus, and then this, the result of those things is that we are called the Son of God. And being like God makes us, when we go back to that first word, it makes us happy. And to me, that would prove that God himself is in fact and in nature both peaceful and happy. See that correlation there? After all, have you ever, have you ever had a time in your life where you were estranged from someone, you had a, you had a mix-up with someone, so there's just strife. Have you ever felt worse after reconciling? Anyone? No, you feel better. You always feel better when you make peace. It's because you're being like God. I want us to read this. Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 13 says this. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so it is with my word. It goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire. This is, of course, the Lord speaking here. And achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And that purpose is you will go out in joy. You will be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign, which will not be destroyed. It says here this will be for the Lord's renown, his reputation, how he will be known and it'll be an everlasting sign. So an everlasting sign of God's character is that he wants us to be joyful and peaceful because that's who he is. And does, this, that, does that scene, by the way, sound anything other than like the video we watched? This is the Disney movie, folks. This is trees and this is Fantasia and brooms and trees and alligators and people at all of it dancing and clapping and shouting for joy. This is, what, this is the picture that the scripture is creating for us here. 
this will be an everlasting sign of God's character. God is a happy God. Let's take a look at another familiar example. Paul, you know, since we were knee-high to a grasshopper, and I don't know why I say that, I just like saying it. But since we were knee-high to a grasshopper, we've been taught about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I think I got them all. Faithfulness. See, I wasn't faithful enough to get them all. Um, but we, I, I, oftentimes we look at that as sort of a checklist to holiness or a checklist to a spiritual walk, right? And, and, and the problem is that we try to, like, white-knuckle our way through it. Like, oh, I've got to be joyful, joyful, joyful. I've got to be more peaceful. And we work at this. And it, it, we, we try and we, and, we, and we strive to be more peaceful and we try to be more faithful and more kind and more loving. But that's not what it is. It's fruit. How do you get fruit? Fruit emanates from its source. When it's connected to its source, it grows naturally. And what is this fruit? It's the fruit of the Spirit. So when we are connected with our source, when we are abiding with the Holy Spirit, when we're spending time in God's Word, we are connected with who God is, and when we're connected with who God is, His fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, is exhibited naturally. It's a natural byproduct of having spent time with God to be joyful. It's a natural byproduct of having spent time with God to be peaceful and joyful and loving and faithful and kind and all of those things. The Greek word here is kara, and it, it literally means joy, the feeling of inner happiness, rejoicing, gladness, delight. And again, it can be just as easily translated as happiness. So in, in other words, if happiness or joy is in the fruit of the Spirit, then that means that happiness is also in the character of the Spirit of God. And God is intrinsically happy. And if happiness is in God, then happiness can also be found near God. So one way of looking that, at that is to combine it with Jesus' own statement in uh, John chapter 14 when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus here, this is important for us to get, that Jesus is intentionally using a verbal construct in this statement. He's, he is confirming that he is God. He's confirming his deity. And this is one of the reasons that the Pharisees were so mad at him is because he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am life. And he's, he's echoing the same construct that, that the Lord used when he spoke to Moses in the, bur in the burning bush when he said, who, who, who should I say sent me? He says, tell them that I am sent you. And my Hebrew professor in college said that, that the English doesn't quite get it properly when you say I am because there's, there's, there's an infinitive kind of characteristic to that, that word there. She said that one, of the, one way to say that that maybe gives it a little bit better Understanding what God is saying. He says, I will continue to be who I will continue to be. God is he's faithful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, but he will be who he is. So back to the point here is that Jesus doesn't have a way or some truth or a little life. Jesus is the way. Jesus is truth, and Jesus is life personified. And in the God is happiness. So when we read again in the fruit of the Spirit, we can come to know that God is peace. God is patience. God is kindness and goodness. God personifies those things. Happiness just, is just an emotion that God, though I'm sure that it is, <coughs> happiness is who God is. Hebrews 11.6 says this, and without faith 
it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So what two things can we take from this passage? One, God exists. Two, he rewards those who seek him. And it says here that those, those are the things that we have to believe in order to please him. It pleases him for us to believe that he is who he is, and it pleases him for us to believe that he loves us and wants to give us good stuff. So let's think about that. God rewards those who seek him. What does that say about his character? What does that say about his personality and his general disposition? Well, to me, it indicates that he likes it when people try to find him. I think he plays this sort of cosmic game of hide-and-seek with us sometimes. And he likes to be found. Who, who here, when you were a kid and you played in hide-and-seek, who, who wanted to stick around in the closet all day long and everybody else play? No, you wanted to be found. I mean, you wanted to be the last one to be found, so you win. But you wanted to be found. In the same way God wants to be found by us, he likes it. And it indicates, I think, and, and I think this is important, as, I, uh, as I've been praying it through this message and, and thinking through it, um, I know that there's at least one person here that needs to hear this truth. God is not mad at you. He's not angry. He's not disappointed in you. He's not like wrapping his fingers on the table wondering when you're finally going to get it and start living right. To the contrary, he is happy with you. He loves you. He wants you. He desires you. He desires to be with you. And he wants to reward you simply for coming to him. It reminds me, and I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but we're, many of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. So the gist of it is that you know, the younger brother, who was sort of the lowly brother in this culture, decided that he was kind of done with family life and he wanted to get his cash and go. And we don't, we don't do a good job sometimes of, of, of contextualizing what these stories really are saying. So in that culture, for a son to go to a father and say, hey, I'd, I'd like to have my inheritance now. Translation, hey, Dad, can you be dead so I can have your money? How many, how many parents in here, speaking of Mother's Day, how, how many of you would like that to be uttered from your children's mouth? Can you imagine how hurtful and painful that would be for your child to say, I don't care about you, but I'll take your money so I can leave. That's what he said. And so the scripture says that he went and he spent it. He wasted it in wild living and with prostitutes. He, clearly, he did not invest wisely and, and look for a, a, a good return later on on, on, his, on his money. No, he, he, just, he just went wild. And then he got to the end of his money. And it says that he, was, he, was, he had found sort of, I mean, we'll call it work, by, by feeding somebody else's pigs. And he's in the pig slop and in their mess and realizes that the pigs are eating better than he is. And he goes, huh, okay. My dad's servants have it better than this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, and I think, there's, I think there's a moment of genuine repentance that's going on here too. I don't think it's, it's strictly just, you know, self-preservation at work, although I, I'm sure that was a, a component. He goes, okay, I'm going to go to my dad and I'm going to say, I've sinned against you and against God. And, I'm, and because of, he sort of realizes how awful he was to his dad. And so he goes back and, he, and he's going to say, okay, I get that I'm not worthy to be your son because of how awful I've been. But can I just be one of your servants and I'll take care of your pigs or something? I'm not sure that he was, probably, probably wasn't raising pigs since it was a kosher family. But, which, which gives you sort of another element to the story. 
But so he goes back, and this part of the story always messes with me. So you know he's got this sort of speech rehearsed that he's going to tell his dad, and it's, the scripture says that while he was a long way off, his father saw him. And his dad didn't like wait around going, okay, fine. He's you know, he, this wasn't an I told you so moment. This wasn't a see, you know, th- there was no lecture. There was no. Uh, condemnation or consternation. No, his dad took off running to meet him. And in that culture, that would have been dishonorable for a man. Like, older older gentlemen didn't run. That was just something you didn't do. It was, you just, it wasn't, wasn't looked upon well. So he runs to his son, and his dad, and, and you can see in the scripture, he kind of, kind of gets half of it out. He's like, dad, I've sinned against, and his dad's like, shut up, and gives him a hug. And says, go, kill the fatted cow, get a robe, put a ring on his finger. My son who is dead has returned and is now alive. That's who God is. God isn't waiting for you to come back so that he can lecture you or tell you about all the things you did wrong. God runs to you the way that this father ran to his son from a long way off. He was, in other words, he's waiting for him to come back. He's hoping that he'll come back. And when he finally does, he runs to him and embraces him. I'm telling you, if you get a hold of what that means, first of all, that'll preach. Like if I, I need some more amens at this point. But, <laughs> but if you get a hold of that, it'll change your life. And it'll absolutely revolutionize the way you look at God. God simply wants you to believe in him. And he wants you to seek him. And he will reward you just for doing that as opposed to punishing you for not doing so. And of course, we're, we're all created with these emotions, right? We've got all of these, you know, love and happiness and sadness and excitement, anger, hope, grief, and on and on down the list. And Adam and Eve had those exact same options when they were created. They were created with emotion. And the reason why is because we're created in Again, the Imago Dei, in the image of God. We are created like God. We're not, we are not gods. <laughs> it's very careful to, very important to, to be distinct about that. But we are created in his image. So the fact that we have these emotions, the fact that we have these desires for these emotions and feelings should be enough to prove that God has them too. But we've looked at the scripture a little bit. We're going to continue to do so. And you can easily see throughout the scripture, God has a range of emotions. The difference between us and God, obviously, is that he's the only one who exercises them properly all of the time. And happiness is, of course, one of the most identifiable and sought-after feelings that we, that we understand. Blaise Pascal, the, you know, the famous French philosopher, talked about it. You've probably heard people talk about sort of the God-shaped hole in our hearts or something along those lines. Here's what he actually said. All men seek happiness. Even that one. Um, what else does this longing and helplessness proclaim? But there was once in each person a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. We try to fill this in vain with everything around us, seeking in things that are not there the help we cannot find in those that are there. Yet none can change things, because the infinite abyss can only be filled with something that is infinite and unchanging. In other words, by God himself. God alone is our true good. 
Alcorn puts it this way, our longing for happiness gives evidence that God created our universe. It reminds us of the fall and prompts us to seek God. The longing reminds us that we belong in a different world, or more correctly, that we belong in this world, amended, reclaimed, and restored according to God's original design. We're not home yet, but our hunger points to the meal only God can provide. Of course, there's danger in that idea too, right? Because, as Pascal said, this the void in our nature is, is of an infinite nature. So that means we have a massive appetite for fulfillment. Nothing satisfies, nothing satiates, nothing brings lasting happiness and fulfillment. So many of us run after happiness in the wrong directions. We run headlong into all the world that has to offer, seeking pleasure, trying to find solace, running after anything that seems fun or promises any kind of peace and satisfaction. There's a reason that there are more pot shops than coffee shops in Colorado. We're going to seek happiness one way or another. Our entire consumer system is built on this very premise. There's always a new car, a bigger house, a better iPhone, a new song, a cooler movie, better clothes, more and more and on and on and round and round we go. All of them carrying with them the false promise that if you just get X, you'll be happy. We all desire happiness because we're fashioned and made that way. We're made in the image of God. We are made like God with emotions. We desire happiness the same way that we desire food and drink. But, but the answer is not to, to fast and abstain all of these things, but rather to train ourselves what food and drink is good for us, that which is healthy and sustaining. Likewise, we train ourselves to follow after happiness in a way which is healthy and sustaining. So how do we do that? It's sort of the $64,000 question, right? When, when was that show made? I wonder what $64,000 would be translated to now. It's probably more. So it's, it's a bigger question now. If we find the things that make God happy and we do those things, then it stands to reason that if we're made in his image, then we'll find true happiness in those same things. Psalm 32.1 says this, Happy is he whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man or the person whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. If it makes us happy to have our sins forgiven, because of the Imago Dei, it must then make God happy to forgive. Like I said before, have you ever felt worse after forgiving someone? I just had this happen recently. I had uh, Mark and I have talked about this actually, that there's a, a, a close friend of mine who, who he and I had had a pretty major disagreement and hadn't spoken, and we'd gone from speaking you know, almost daily to not speaking for you know, six, seven, eight months. Uh, pretty, pretty big divide in our relationship. But we got together, I don't know, about a month ago now, and sat down and had breakfast and, and talked through many of the things that, that, that are disagreements. I don't, I don't want to go into it. But afterwards, we both felt better. And, and while our, our, our life isn't perfect, our relationship isn't completely restored to, the, to what it was before, there, there are stepping stones there. And there's, there's a level of trust there that's beginning to build again. But 
aside from all of those things, we both felt better after just simply forgiving one another. So if it makes God happy to forgive, then it, it must make us happy to be forgiven. So here's the thing. If we want to participate in the happiness of God, if we want to be part of his character, then the only thing that's standing in the way is forgiveness. The message says it this way. Count yourself lucky. How happy you must be. You get a fresh start. Your slate's wiped clean. Count yourself lucky. God holds nothing against you. And you're holding nothing back from him. That is not the whole. It doesn't work that way. So maybe you're sitting here thinking, yeah, okay, Brandon, that all sounds great for you or God or other people. But you don't know me. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I live like. You don't know any of that stuff. You're right. I don't. God does. And he, he, he does know, and not just because he's omniscient and knows everything or every thought. But he does. He knows it because the Bible says that Jesus is acquainted with our suffering. He was tempted just as we are, yet was without sin. He knows exactly what you're going through right now. It says that we don't have a high priest who is unacquainted, but rather we have this high priest who understands, who, who put flesh on, who put skin and bone on, and lived our lives so that he would, not, not just for the forgiveness and not just all those things. Those are, those are fine. Like We talk a lot about the idea that Jesus died for us. We don't talk a lot about the idea that Jesus lived for us. He lived a life so that he would understand what we go through on a day-to-day and a week-to-week basis. He gets what it's like to be hungry. He gets what it's like to be lonely. He gets what it's like to have a broken family. He gets what it's like to, to have knuckleheads for friends. He gets what it's like to be tempted. He gets what it's like to suffer. But he also gets what it's like to laugh and enjoy the creation that God has for us. Jesus isn't just some, you know, I, I used to believe this. Like growing up, I, I grew up in the Lutheran church, and I just sort of thought of God as this, you know, transcendent and ethereal and holy and powerful, but disconnected and sort of a blind watchmaker. He kind of set the world in motion and, and then just left it alone. But that's not who he is. And Jesus is proof of that. He came and lived life just like we do. Only he did it better. A lot better. Especially if you're talking about me. So, Hebrews 12 too, we talked about this a minute ago. It's, it's echoing Isaiah 62 and 63. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It says that he bore our transgressions. He knew our pain and for the joy and happiness set before him. Which that doesn't sound joyful. Like the cross is not a happy place. It, it's, I think that Jesus in his infinite wisdom chose the point in history at which he would die for us on purpose. Because he knew that the cross was one of the most excruciating painful awful ways to die of any capital punishment ever known in history. He chose that on purpose. So to me, I'm going, wait, wait, wait. The joy set before him? 
No, no, no. The pain set before him. The agony set before him. The, the difficult. But it's, but that's not what it says. It says the joy, the happiness that was set before him. And the happiness that was set before him is the idea of you and I being made right with him. The idea of Psalm 32, 1, that happy is he whose sins are forgiven. The idea of Luke 15, where it says, I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous persons who do not repent. That for every sinner redeemed, God throws a party in heaven. The joy, the happiness of God being reunited with the people he loves most for that that joy, Jesus endured the cross. So it wasn't just about being forgiven, although it is about that. It it wasn't just about being made spotless and holy, although it is about that. And it wasn't just about becoming part of the community of faith, although it certainly is also about that. It was for the happiness of God being reunited with you and with me, the thought that that you, right where you are today, right where I am today, in the midst of all of our messiness, turning back to God, that is what draws out the happiness of God more than anything. It's like, I know this is a, a minuscule little example, but I love picking my kids up from school. I, I haven't seen them all day, and getting to catch up and see and and sort of pull out what they did at school. But just seeing them again makes me happy. Just being with them again makes me happy. It's the same way with God, only on a far grander scale. He just wants to be with.